I'm Jeff Eichler. And I'm Kirsten Rickert. And we are the hosts of the Getting Unstuck podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Coming up on episode 79 of Podcast PD, we talk with Ken Shelton about becoming a liberated educator. Let's start the show. This is Podcast PD, the show that provides you with anytime, anywhere professional development. Our conversations and guests will provide you with the learning you might get in a faculty meeting or on a PD day. Except you're going to have more fun with AJ Bianco, Stacey Lindis, and me, Chris Nessie. Let's start the show. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning, good afternoon. Whenever you're listening to this, you are joining us on Sunday, July 12th. It is 8.34, and this is another episode of Podcast PD. Welcome inside of episode number 79, where we are going to be speaking with Ken Shelton about becoming an anti-biased and anti-racist educator. Ken has some great information that he's going to share with, with all of us, and we thank you for being here. My name is Mr. Nessie, at Mr. Nessie on Twitter, also host of the House of EdTech podcast, and I am joined as always by my podcast compadres, Stacy Lindis and AJ Bianco. Stacy, how are you? I am doing all right. I am uh, getting over a day outside pretty much all day today. I ran 4.25 miles, uh, had some fun with a with a community member just sitting on her patio in the back and just kind of enjoying some um, summertime normalness at a socially distanced, totally, you know, appropriate in a, in a totally appropriate way or the new appropriate way. I don't know. Is yeah. the beginning of that code for you got sunburned? No, no, I'm past <laughs> sunburn at this point. I'm like, I'm where I should be for July suntan and um, I'll be about a shade or two darker before we head back to or start virtual school in the fall. And based on what we talked about before we hit record, by the time we're done with this recording, you'll be a shade or two darker as the sun goes down. <laughs> That's true, too. <laughs> true, true. Sun setting in New Jersey. So, AJ, how are you? Yeah, things are good on this end. I uh, did my normal weekend thing, had a time with the family, did the lawn today, a little barbecue. You know, it's always what it is, right? Sunday, Sunday, lawn day. So if you haven't cut the grass, I don't know what's going on. That's it. You don't know what's going on. If it's, if it's, if I'm not doing the lawn on a Sunday, you know, things are going on. So my neighbors can uh, find me by clockwork. Yep. Sunday, 11 (laughs) o'clock. AJ's there doing the lawn. So, uh, so yeah, you know, had the barbecue going. It was a wonderful day today. So a good weekend all in all and a beautiful weekend today, at least yesterday rained, but today was nice. Yeah. A lot lot of traffic here at the Jersey shore because it was pretty crummy on Friday with a tropical storm filling the blank here coming Faye. through the area. It's Faye. Yeah, Faye. Faye. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't, I don't keep track of that. <laughs> um, so on tonight's episode, again, if you're listening on the podcast side, you really have to come out on uh, the Sundays when we record at podcastpd.com slash live. Uh, we are throwing a, a wrench into the machine because we could not pass up the opportunity to do so because we have a great guest with us tonight. We are joined by Ken Shelton, who is a phenomenal educator and doing some amazing work based on current events, and we're going to continue the conversation around anti-biased and anti-racist education. Uh, We will get back to what we think is our schedule for our summer episodes next time around. 
So just make sure you're checking out podcastpd.com and our socials for all that information. Stacy, why don't you kick off introducing our guest and we can get into tonight's topic. Sounds awesome. So a little background on Ken. Ken holds a an MA in education with a specialization in education educational technology as well as new media design and production. Uh, he has worked as an educator for 20 years. Uh, as part of his active involvement with educational technology community, Ken is an Apple Distinguished Educator and a Google Certified Innovator. And uh, Ken regularly gives keynotes, presentations, consults. He also leads workshops, and he covers a wide variety of educational technology, equity and inclusion, multimedia literacy, cultural relevance, visual storytelling, and instructional design topics. And most recently, Ken was acknowledged for his work in this world uh, by being named the 2018 ISTE Digital Equity PLN Excellence Award winner. Ken Shelton, welcome to Podcast PD. Thank you all so much. Am I the only one that's on the, the West Coast here? We're all in New Jersey. Okay, New Jersey, there you yeah. go. All okay. right. Got it, got it. Just just checking. No, yeah, I appreciate sorry, you don't, you don't you don't have Jeff Heil there to to help you out and have that West Coast Pride thing going. Uh, Jeff <laughs> Jeff is in the other Southern California, you know. So I'm I'm in Southern California, but he likes to claim that San Diego is the true Southern California. That's the <laughs> that's the Southern Southern California. Well, I, I just learned there are two Souths in California. Yeah, depending upon your perspective, <laughs> I'm biased. L.A. That's it. L.A. proper. It's like Central Jersey. Does it really exist? I was just going to say that's the argument. That that was a whole big thing on social media, you know, with the Central Jersey haters coming out. Really? There are haters? I need to see that. Lots of people on Twitter saying it doesn't exist. They need to come to Central Jersey or just listen to Phil Murphy with um, one of the evening comedians. (laughs) He covered it. He lives in Middletown. It's as Central Jersey as it gets. Is it called Middletown because it's literally in the center? I really don't know, but it was just very funny. (laughs) Very cool. Now, I appreciate y'all having me on here. This is cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I got to say, it's a blast because I'm no stranger to your voice because, again, I'm the I'm the pod father, as you may be familiar. So being the editor of Partial Credit, you know, I've heard you many times, lots of times. So um, it's a pleasure to hear your voice in person. And thanks for taking time on a Sunday night. Yeah, to go thank on our you. little program. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So, why don't we dive right in? Again, we're living in a time and a space where there are a lot of questions and there are a lot of things going on in education when it comes to, I mean, there, there's two big things right now. How do you open up schools with a pandemic? And based on recent events in society and, and, and race, um, how do we, as teachers and educators, do our jobs and positively impact our students when taking into account events like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many other tragedies that are taking place. So Ken is here because he is doing work in the space. He is active and we're going to be talking about a event that he's putting together a little bit later in the program. But why don't we start, Ken? What does it mean to be an anti-biased an anti-racist educator? Oh, good question. So basically it it means several things. One is recognizing that you as an individual, whether you want to or not, are participatory in a system that essentially is designed to maintain both a social hierarchy and the status quo. And as participants within the system, our biases in many cases dictate the policies 
that the individuals either perpetuate, enforce, or again, are participatory in. And in some cases, the policies are also can also be identified on on the lines of a racial hierarchy, i.e., racism. Racism, um, and that's that's part of how um, my buddy Dr. Kendi defines it in in his book and and you know the opportunities I've had to chat with him, which unfortunately won't be any anytime soon because he's so busy. But anything that anything that can be identified as maintaining or upholding a racial hierarchy is racist. Period. And so those two are not mutually exclusive, because if you think in terms of school, how many policies are a byproduct of a bias that is designed by design also upholds a racial hierarchy? The easiest identifier along those lines are things like a standardized curriculum or anything that could be identified as your discipline strategies or discipline policies on a campus. And so what it means as an educator is to interrogate yourself around What are my biases? How do they impact my actions, interactions with my colleagues and more specifically with my students? And then, you know, in my participation, participation within the system, how am I upholding a racial hierarchy, either, um, you know, unwillingly or sadly, in some cases, willingly? And so for me, with us as educators, it's again, it's being able to recognize that, you know, Examining your own privilege and your own biases doesn't necessarily make you a bad person, but it doesn't exonerate the bad system that's in play. A follow up. When you talk about making those assessments, I'm sure that there are the far majority of educators, whether you're a classroom teacher or an administrator, will all sit here and will think, I'm not biased. I'm not racist. Right. But there are those implicit biases, and you talk about these systems that are in place. So what are some examples of things in education that maybe are racist and biased that don't quickly jump to the forefront as being biased or racist? Perfect. Okay, so first of all, the key is to recognize we all have biases and understand how that works. So for your audience, ultimately, uh, the biases that we carry, which I, my argument is that pretty much all of them are unconscious or implicit uh, until you until you have gone through the process of acknowledging that they exist and then reflecting on actions that you've taken as a result of them. Uh, and so we all have them. Uh, and they don't again, they don't. It's not a function of them making you a bad person. It's the way our brain works. Our brain works. Our brain looks for forcefully for ways to confirm things that we have been taught, things that we have thought or messaging that we have received as a byproduct of familiarity, as well as uh, safety and comfort. Okay. So that's, that's how that works. So if I, if I've been taught a particular thing about uh, an individual, a group or a situation, um, I'm looking to confirm what I was taught because I don't want to be wrong. If you think in terms in education, you know, the whole idea around failure and growth and all those other things, what are those really boil, boil down to? They boil down to the fact that we don't want to be wrong. And so for me, it's, it's, it's operating from a degree of an understanding that we all have them, that we all carry them. In some cases, they're not necessarily bad. Uh, and in some cases, they are bad. And so when you think in terms of that and you look at, at racism in education, I'll tell you one of the easiest things to look at standard, anything that is standardized, anything that is standardized, because the question as an educator that you want to ask in far as interrogating the system is anything that is standardized. Who is it standardized to? Who made a decision as to placing a value over it? And then how is that value actualized or assessed? Standardized tests is a big one. 
I mean, I, I, I used to share this all the time. If you are not an upper middle class cisgender white male, standardized tests are not designed for your success. If you were successful, it was despite, not because of. And then you, then again, you can look at, you know, the discipline, uh, discipline policies on campuses. You know, from my experiences when I was in school, one of the big ones that I was staunchly um, vocal against were things like um, uh, school uniform policies. You know, first of all, they're generally punitive towards girls. And at several of my schools, part of the the what was deemed to be appropriate dress um, was the policing of of um, young black girls hair, like telling them what hairstyle they can wear. And see that that's racist, because ultimately what you're determining to be acceptable is probably going to be more aligned with the dominant culture, which is a bias that you have. And those that you are treating from a punitive capacity as a result of that is racist. And I, I think we've seen that. Most often when it comes to dress code, I, I think I see at least one story a year. I, I, there was one a couple of years ago, I think here in New Jersey, mm-hmm. with a male wrestler who yes. had dreadlocks. Um, there was, uh, I, I want to say Texas or South Carolina. Again, a young male student with dreadlocks was never a problem until it came to graduation when right. they're not going to be allowed to walk. That's right. And it, it, it I, I see those stories and it makes me say, what year is it? And, mm-hmm. and I, I just don't understand policies like that and how things like those are the things we need to revise and rewrite and correct. And that's just not being done at the rate we'd like to see it. No, it's not. And, and here's the here's the key with that. Those those policies are the driver for the actions that the people take. And if you're one of the writers of those that policy, you know, my first question is when you when you're writing policy, who's at the decision making table when that policy is written? And then even further to that, a further examination I always uh, push for adults to do is uh, is look at who you surround yourself with. If you surround yourself with like minded, similar um, identifying or identity people, then you are not going to dismantle or disrupt that that perpetuation of that thinking and of the policy that is a byproduct of that thinking. And so that's why, you know, in terms of. You know, that was that was, uh, uh, you know, school discipline things. But I even I, I even have so many personal stories around things like who gets assigned to the honors and, and highly gifted classes, who gets access to the AP classes? You know, uh, why is it that I can look at a major city and based on the median income of the families within uh, certain zip codes, I already know which schools are highly likely to be successful versus which ones are not. Um, I'll give you another example along those lines is the standardized tests. Mm-hmm. You know, um, at one of my previous schools that I worked at here in California, the way it worked was the following. And this is something that I, I know a lot of educators don't know this about standardized tests, which is, you know, a lot of us are, were, were outspoken or or, or vocal about being against them because they don't they don't truly measure achievement, which is a whole another thing I could talk about. But here's the thing about standardized tests that, that a lot of educators don't know. Not all the questions on that test count for your score. There's always a block of questions that are on that test that do not get scored. And you know what those questions are for? Those questions are to determine who gets to, who uh, what what which students answer the questions correct, what school are those students from Break it down based on demographics, because if you ever look at the test, the students have to fill in all that demographic data. Okay, here's your big data. And if you are at the school of students from a school that is in a wealthy area or upper right middle class area, 
uh, upper middle class white area. If a high percentage of those students answer the questions correctly, guess what ends up on the test the next time? But if you have students from an economically challenged area that answer a question with a high, high frequency of correctness, that doesn't end up on the test. And so my personal story aligned with that was one of my previous schools. We were on the way it worked was each school had to reach what was called AYP, which was your average yearly progress. So your test scores, you had to do that. And I was one of the first teachers at that school. Uh, I was early in uh, in the year. So so I'll, I'll explain it like this. So we didn't meet our AYP for uh, three straight years and when you or, or two straight years. When you don't do that, you go into what's called the program improvement, PI, and you go PI one, two, three, four, five. If you make it to PI five, you run the risk of the state taking over the school, which is a whole nother episode for us to discuss around that whole thing. We were at PI three. And so the whole idea, the beginning of that year was we need to do better on the test, you know, better on the test. So we're going to do, uh, you know, uh, project based learning and we're going to do this kind of learning and this kind of, you know, whatever the pedagogy of the year was. I was the only one that spoke up and I said, actually, we should be teaching to the test. You should be giving the kids nothing but test after test after test after test every single day, every day. And of course, the teacher's like, no, that's not learning. That's not learning. I said, well, listen, do you want to do better on the test? You don't play basketball to get better at football. You do more football. So if you want to get good at the, you want the students to perform better on the test, then you got to teach to the test. This is the game of school. And so what ultimately happened was we started doing more of that. And I'll never forget that year, that school and quite a few other schools in the Los Angeles Valley School District actually scored above their AYP, which meant they could get off PI. Guess what happened the very next year? The questions on the tests changed. And we haven't even gone into interrogating the questions themselves, which are culturally biased. So do the questions change to keep certain populations from achieving high achievement? Bingo. And therein lies the racism in that. Correct. And that's why you could look at, uh, you know, schools in many states. And all I got to know is what's the zip code and what's the demographic of the students. And I already know. So in your opinion, is it better that we're starting to see colleges and universities around the country say we're not acknowledging ACT and SAT scores? Absolutely. One hundred percent. I remember taking the SAT uh, in high school and, you know, I was fortunate enough to play sports. So for me, it was just a uh, uh, one of the steps I had to take, but it wasn't going to determine uh, my future in college. Um and I remember getting reading questions like, first of all, like the reading and reading comprehension. I remember, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles and any time they talked about reading, there was a story or questions around uh, life on a farm. It used terminology. I'll never forget, like a silo, all those. I'd never been exposed to that language. Um, and keep in mind, in high school, I had, you know, uh, AP English, AP American Lit. You know, these are supposed to prepare you for college. That's what they tell you. But but they, it's been proven that they're culturally biased. And so, yeah, I'm happy to see colleges and universities um, um, get rid of those exams here in California. University of California system was like, we're going to phase it out. Um, it doesn't it doesn't do anything besides stratify students. And of course, that stratification, when you look at the stories behind the numbers and look at the de- devil in the details, you see that it's along socioeconomic and race lines. And in fact, I'll even argue uh, one one further step to that, if you want uh, some degree of a historical context, if you look at high performing schools 
And this is this is a good challenge for your audience. If you look at high performing schools in major urban areas, I would argue, and I haven't done the research on this, I haven't done the thorough research on this yet, but it's going to be a byproduct of, of the book that I'm working on. I would argue that part of the predictability of success is a direct result of housing and the housing and the distribution of housing is a direct result of redlining and blockbusting. And so that's where you had this, 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 the, the major shift in the demographics in our urban centers out to the suburbs. And then now with the, with the urban centers, since they don't have as much, or since they do have degrees of local control over school district uh, boundaries, you have the suburbs who basically say, we don't, we're going to create our own school district because we have the financial means, because we have the tax base, because of the property values. And so therefore we're going to have our own district, which is why you ultimately have a resegregation of schools. And then what a surprise. Those are your areas where they get the most resources and they perform better on tests on anything standardized. But my thing, my main thing with that is, is even the access to resources. Why is it that you can go to a certain area of a city and look at a quote unquote underperforming school? And here's a key. Let's keep in mind terminology. If it's underperforming, then that means the other schools are overperforming. And I could look at things like the police department, the fire department, any one of those, whatever resources they need to perform the essential functions of their job, they get. How many of those schools get that? Well, we're seeing that right now. I saw something on social media about, you know, the the bailout that so many Americans received, you know, their checks in the last few months. You know, what, what if the American government invested $500 billion into education? <laughs> yeah. What would happen? <laughs> I couldn't even fathom what our system could do or, or how we would screw it up. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, it's a start. And, and, and I think ultimately the key word that you just shared is investment. And this is the thing that to understand about terminology, which I, I wanted to mention uh, when you all read my bio, I, this is important for your audience as well, which we can touch on it later is that in my bio, I need, I'm going to change on my website that I need to include my pronouns, which are he, him, his. And, 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 and I'm sharing that in the context of what you share, because we have to be mindful of the terminology that, that persists in education. First of all, uh, a, a, a overwhelming percentage of the terminology we use is deficit based. If you look at underperforming, intervention, low performing, poor schools, I mean, think about all those things rather than looking at what are the assets that the schools have, that the kids have, that the families have, and then what resources and support can be provided. And so to the point you just made, you know, you use the word investment, that's what it is. But yet I always look at how when certain schools in certain areas need an influx of, of financial resources, it's, well, that's going to cost a whole lot. That's an expenditure. It's an investment. And yes, we all know that it's not a perfect system, but I would even argue that how often have we as individuals gotten a bonus on our check or gotten money that we didn't expect and we use that properly as well? You know, there's going to be mistakes that are made. Ideally, you have mechanisms for uh, accountability and support so that you mitigate the impact of those mistakes. But but you got to be able to take the step to at the start, you know. So, Ken, I'm I'm going to I'm going to throw it out there. I'm having a hard time with this. Right. Not, not not your explanation, because everything you're saying is crystal clear. But for me as an individual, I'm saying to myself, as you're saying things, oh, no, not me. Right. That's not me. I never I never do that. And then all of a sudden you're hitting me with, you know, the, the tests and, and we put the kids in the testing situations. And, you know, I was a big believer in project based learning. And, you know, was I doing a disservice to my students? Was I not hitting the mark for the students that needed the extra attention in a variety of ways? So when we think about our educators, whether it's leaders or our teachers or, or whatever the case may be, consultants, whatever, where do we start? 
Where do we self-assess? Where do we begin this this understanding of looking at the big picture and trying to figure out how we can help all students instead of just kind of picking on those things that we think are best for our classroom? Right. I mean, it really starts with the individual. It really starts with you. Um, in the organizational culture workshops I do for school leaders, I, I, I look at schools as systems and the individuals as um, essentially mechanisms within those systems. And in fact, some uh, uh, some of the research I've done, um, I'm drawing a blank on the gentleman's name right now, but, you know, he, he has a, the, the phrase, it's not the forest or the trees, it's the forest and the trees. So all of us are, are, are the trees within the system, which is the forest. And it, it really really, really requires us to interrogate ourselves, hold a mirror up to yourself and ask yourself, how am I participating in the system? What am I doing that is actively dismantling elements of the system that are exclusionary or that create that hierarchy? Um, one of my favorite books that I read as an educator was Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Dr. Beverly Tatum. And she uses uh, the metaphor of life as a moving sidewalk and that those that benefit from the status quo walk with it. Many who don't necessarily agree with that, but don't want to rock the boat if, or, or, or don't want to disrupt the status quo, stand still. But guess what? It's still moving. We have to turn around and actively go against it. Uh, and then even in terms with Dr. Kendi, you know, he shares around, you know, that being an anti-racist is is an ongoing, continuous process because we can be anti-racist in one statement and racist in another statement, all within the context of the same conversation. And so what I add to that is this idea around uh, the, the self-compassion uh, and then the humility that should come with that. So one of the things that I, I like to share is, a, is this whole idea around privilege. All of us in some way, shape or form benefit from some type of privilege. I'll give an example of privileges that I benefit from. I'm male. I'm cisgender. I'm able bodied And for here in the United States, my first language is English. Those are privileges that I have. They don't make me a bad person. What they do is they make me a better informed person to say, okay, for example, when I was an educator and worked in the classroom, I taught especially especially my last 10 years in a classroom, I, I on any given day, I could have in the, a home language of more than 10 different languages spoken at home by my students. So you want to know one of the first things that I did that I didn't have the terminology then that I do now that is culturally inclusive and culturally responsive. Um, and by the way, anti-racist. One, anything, any correspondence that was going to go home to the parents, I would use Google Translate. And we all know Google Translate is not necessarily 100% accurate 100% of the time. You know who I would ask to go vet the quality of that translation? The students of which that was their primary language. And I would literally say, can you vet this to make sure that it translated it correctly, that I'm communicating exactly what I want your parents to know, which is what we're doing in class, what I want them to be able to have access to, and that my classroom door is always open for them if they have the ability to come to school, for them to come in and enjoy the learning environment just as much as I do, just as much as you do. Think about what that does to the mindset of a student in regards to the fact that I'm validating their own cultural identity, in this case, a long language, that I'm making sure that it is inclusive of their parents, that I'm making sure it's accessible to their parents. And by the way, I'm not placing a hierarchical value on that, especially if my students uh, are of a Latinx identity or, um, you know, I had several students that were from, I mean, you name it, Southeast Asia. I remember two students that were from Israel where um, their primary language was um, uh, Hebrew. I mean, just all of the above. And so me having that recognition and that awareness of, okay, so these are the things that I know I benefit from. 
how do I dismantle those barriers to someone who doesn't necessarily benefit from them and do it actively and recognize that there might be some times where I miss that. And it's okay as long as I have the mechanism in place to catch it so that I don't become exclusionary and it's not, I I don't disrupt that process. That's really powerful. Mm -hmm. And again, something Mm -hmm. so simple as to translate what's going home, that communication, you know, because we take for granted that, all right, I'll write up a letter to send home to parents or even the organizations that send flyers home in the backpacks, you know, you know, typically it's going to be one side is English. The other side is Spanish, right? Which, which, which may cover it depending on your school's population, but there might be, and Stacey, you're shaking your head. Go ahead. (laughs) No, I mean, I like, I'm just thinking, I wish I'd had this conversation back in September when I could have helped my student who had exited out of um, ESL and, her her parents at home spoke Russian. And, you know, again, it's not a language I was from, I'm familiar with at all. I didn't even notice her accent until like two or three days into the school year because she spoke so infrequently. And I just chalked it up to shyness and getting to know each other and we're building a classroom culture. And then I heard it and then I could embrace it and I could embrace her for her for that, you know, for that quality in her. And, you know, but I never really thought about what her mom, who again is here on her own with three other children and dad was back in their home country. And wow, like my head hurts just thinking about the, like what a disservice I did to her and her family and how much I could have helped them and the changes I'm going to make in September when we go back to school in whatever capacity, but just, you know, whatever, whatever my students are, but like Spanish, no, that would not have helped me. And it would not have helped, um, almost anyone in my school. Like there are very few because the languages are so different in my district that, you know, but now I'm just thinking, okay, like what can I do for all of those families? Because I will say out of the 24 kids that I had, probably 20, maybe 18 to 20 of them had a different first language at home. There you go. And, you know, the the added layer to that is think about the message it sends to a child that, you know, to your point, you know, our initial thoughts might be, well, they're just introverted. One, that's a biases because right. we're, we think, oh, if I don't speak up, oh, well, you might be quiet. You might be introverted. Might, some cases it's a function of I don't know that this environment is safe or I feel welcomed in it. So I'm not going to insert my or I'm not going to contribute to it, which is why I really stress the whole idea around making cross-cultural connections so that it, it, it um, it's an environment that we can all not only operate within, but contribute to. Um, and, and one of the other things that I mentioned now, even especially with school leaders is, you know, if you, how, how beneficial could it be if in the context of you sending, uh, you know, some correspondence home that maybe you record a video and you record yourself, uh, reading or, or saying this correspondence, post it on YouTube. And then also for YouTube, for the sake of YouTube, turn, make sure you have closed captioning turned on. And like, these are all these, this is what I call inclusion by design, all these little things that we could do. But, the, but remember to the point that AJ was, uh, the question that AJ asked, it's, you have, you have to have that awareness first. And once you have that awareness, you know, as long as you are purposeful in doing all these things, they then can become normalized. And then when they become normalized, you now have one dismantled, uh, a cultural norm that that is exclusionary, but you've also made it a natural byproduct of what you do, which is inclusive. And that ties in with the whole idea around being an anti-bias and anti-racist educator. You know, I know that that, that being anti-racist tends to be 
uh, you know, a touch point for a lot of adults. My response to that is, you, first of all, it's been medically or, or, or confirmed through research that kids develop um, a preference and awareness of skin tone, skin color as early as the age of four. And I always tell people, why don't you Google, uh, and I'm drawing a blank on her name now, darn it, um, the, the doll test. It, she did the doll test and where kids identified uh, words associated with dolls. And they associated all the good words with the white doll and all the bad words with the black dolls and a preference. And so my whole thing as it, as it pertains to that with school is you have to be willing to engage in the conversations, acknowledge that there are areas that you don't know, go through and do the work for the areas that you don't know, recognize that there's still going to be areas that you don't know. And the more you normalize having these conversations with students, acknowledging their differences, not being colorblind, which I could explain, and, and, and being culturally inclusive, you, by way of that in, as an individual, are already working against the system. And ideally, the more that we do that, the more that we can start to institute policy that backs those actions that begins to dismantle the system in general. And the more you have those conversations with, with, with your students, interrogating the curriculum, interrogating the way the curriculum is taught, interrogating all those things, guess what happens when those students become adults? They're not reticent to have those conversations because those conversations have become normalized when you were a child. So before we move on with anything else, you talked about um, colorblindness. And I know that like, 10, 15 years ago, it was it was what we did, right? We, we tried to be colorblind. We tried to say, well, I don't see color. I treat everybody the same. And, you know, I've I've done some reading this summer. Um, and and even before this summer, like, I know that it's not OK to be colorblind anymore, that if you're colorblind, then you don't see me and you don't see Chris, and you don't see AJ and we don't see you, Ken. Right. Like because we all are different. And, and to say that we're colorblind is to strip someone of of some, uh, some type of identifying marker that they have for themselves. So do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So it's, it's, first of all, anyone who identifies with saying, I don't see color, what, what you're theoretically doing is two things. One, you're dehumanizing. And two, when you say you don't see color, what you're really saying is I'm still aligned with the dominant culture and that seems to be the norm and that's my comfort place. And so therefore I want to stick to that. It, it's a very dismissive way. And in, in fact, I, I really want to be strong with my language here. I, I look at it as a form of conversational terrorism that we associate with gaslighting because what it's a way of doing is saying, I don't see color, i.e. I don't see color and I really don't want to talk about it. And I don't want you to prove me that I'm wrong because my confirmation bias is telling me that I can say I don't see color and that will lead us to that. That will be a conversational um, stopgap. We got to see color. You, every, everyone sees color. Let's just I'm putting it out there. Everyone sees color and it's not necessarily a, doesn't have to be a bad thing. It has to be. I see you. You know, if you go into uh, what I talk about around social and emotional health of ourselves and our students, we want to be seen, want to be heard, we want to be loved. Part of being seen is you see color. The question is, when you see the color, how do you react to it? Do you react in a way that it creates a hierarchy or do you react in a way that says, I acknowledge our color differences, which are a part of our identity. And here's where those differences are going to benefit and uplift all of us because I want you to be your whole true self. Think about how many students and honestly, I'll even say that how many adults navigate spaces of which they have to carry the burden of not being their whole true self for fear of being excluded or being judged. And now here's my whole thing with, which again, which is the organizational culture work I do. How much do we lose out on because they don't feel that they can contribute to the environments in the first place? 
I can tell tell you all that when I was in the uh, when I was in the classroom, the fact that all of my students, once I built in the trust factor, which means that I was completely in, uh, transparent and authentic with all of my students. And yes, we would have conversations about race. We would have conversations about our differences. And my whole thing was our differences are going to make us all better, because ultimately, if you're your whole true self, a rising tide lifts all boats. This is a judgment free zone. And this is a zone where I want you to. Understand, actualize, and be your whole true self, which is aligned with their cultural identity. And one of the things that I will say that I'm proud of as a um, educator is over the course of my last 10 years in the classroom, I had at least a dozen students uh, um, share with me that they're um, well, actually a few that share with me that their gender assignment at birth was not aligned with their gender identity. I had a number of students share with me that their sexual identity was aligned with the LGBTQ community. And in fact, not only was that, I mean, think about, and I was the first adult they said that to. So think about how powerful that is for me as an educator and how validating it is that not only did I create a culturally inclusive environment of which I was vulnerable, authentic, and my whole true self, that I had students as young as the age of 13 who felt that it was a safe environment they could be their whole true self. And Mr. Shelton is the first adult that I can reveal something of my identity to knowing that he's his default is going to be supportive of me and get my back. And the sad the, the, the sad part about that is not that it was revealed to me that I was invited to a couple of their weddings when, you know, uh, gay marriage was legalized. And unfortunately, because of my schedule, my, I was out, out of town, so I couldn't go. I mean, think about that. I mean, of all the things that I can say I'm, I'm proud of, uh, having been an educator in the classroom, that certainly ranks as one of the tops. And it's, and it's a, it's a testament to those students that they recognize, you know, I, I want to put it about them because I don't want to center it on me because ultimately for me, it was, it was normalized is what I did, but it's a really a credit to the students that they, they had the initiative and wherewithal to say, I'm willing to stand for what I believe in, stand for what my identity is. And I'm going to tell Mr. Shelton. Ken, let, let me ask you this. As a veteran educator who spent many years in the classroom, is what you said is what you just said is important to you and that you've been able to do? Was it something you were able to do at the beginning of your career? What is is it who you are as a person or did you have did you grow into this or how, how did that work for you? I'm glad you asked that question. No. I did not start off that way. It, and, and this goes back to what AJ's question as well. Uh, and it's a whole idea around you, you, you want to, you have to be willing to examine yourself. You have to be willing to have self-compassion as you grow as a human being and as an educator. You have to be willing to forgive yourself for the mistakes that you made that you may have an awareness of now. I did not start off that way. And in fact, I, I in fact, honestly, real talk, I had to unlearn a lot of the things that I was taught in both my credential program and my master's program. Um, I think part of it was those programs were um, now that I recognize what I was taught and the environments that I had to navigate, they were trauma inducing environments, especially, you know, here's something that I, I, I share all the time in my talks. I'll share it here. I was the only black male teacher at all the schools that I worked at in the Los Angeles Unified School District. And I was the only black male student in my entire master's program and my credential program. And so with that, I had to carry the burden of being, uh, you know, being uh, giving the perception that I was the docile, conformist, compliant, 
student who's there to learn how to become a teacher and I will do the, you know, the regimented prescribed ways of doing that. And, uh, you know, a funny story that, that I'll share here that's in, actually I include this in a new keynote, but it's, it's relevant to you asking that question, uh, is something as simple as this. So, and I, I, I love the story and I'm still in touch with, uh, this student, you know, 20 plus years later, he's still one of my favorite human beings, let alone one of my favorite students that I had is one of the things that I was taught, which unfortunately has resonates with a lot of educators, was when it comes to classroom management, you need to have a clear set of rules. You need to be an authoritative figure in the classroom, and you cannot deviate from those rules, and you need to be clearly communicative to your students that these are the rules, and this is the way we do it. And once you establish that order, you must be unapologetic in enforcing those rules. So you see there's that rigidity. So one of the rules that I was taught was don't smile till Christmas. <laughs> That's just what I was thinking. Yep. Hey, see, see, there you go. So here's the funny part to that story. I love to, I mean, I, I, like I said, I include this story in a new keynote because I, it, I, it, it, again, back to, I keep referring back to AJ's question. I put this in a newer keynote probably about a week and a half ago. So this tells you how recent this is aligned with this. So. That former student, I had him for three years. So by that point, I had established, you know, a reputation on campus that Mr. Shelton is a cool teacher. Mr. Shelton is authentic, blah, 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 blah. And, and, and I will say I associate the students referring to me as cool, as in safe. He's got my back 100% of the time. We do cool stuff in his class. I just, I like being there. And I could, if we have the time, I could even share with you all stories of how racism actualized itself at my last school and how I was the safety net for a lot of my students, including students that did not have me, but they knew they had the, I had the reputation. So anyway, third year, you get to about the third week of school. And this was right around the time that the students were um, being, they, they were getting their textbooks. And so I'll never forget. It was probably about late that morning. So it was before lunch, but I remember exactly what happened. I, I even remember the day. It was probably like September 22nd. Um, anyway, so outside the classroom, I go to greet my students. And on a side note, for all the educators that are listening, it's now been proven, confirmed, peer-reviewed research. The value of greeting your students at the door by their correctly pronounced first name and their pronouns if necessary, which you should know, part of their identity can increase the likelihood that the students will have an inclusive and enjoyable experience when they step foot into the learning environment. So I was greeting the students anyway, because it was part of my way of doing it. And no, it doesn't have to be the fancy handshakes and dancing and all the other performative things that we see on YouTube. I, I, I don't want to diminish the value of that, but you, if that's a natural part of what you, who you are and what you do, great. I didn't do that. For me, it was just greeting them at the door. Anyway, so the kids are outside the door and they're all laughing because they all have their textbooks open. And so what textbook they have, they have the eighth grade science book open. Now, my career prior to becoming an educator, I spent a long time as an actor and a model. Early in my modeling days, I did a lot of stock photography because that's part of how you build your portfolio up. So the kids have their science book open to a page where Mr. Shelton is in the textbook. <laughs> yeah. And but here's the thing as it ties into this. So I'm in the textbook. Kids are laughing. They're like, Mr. Shelton, that's you. That's you. I'm like, yeah, I remember I told you I was a model in a previous career. I know that's or that was an early Stock photography gig. Well, this student comes up to me and is like, Mr. Shelton, I, I see you in the textbook. He's like, but I got to ask you the question. And I'm just like, sure, you know, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna be real with you. You can ask the question. He's like, but in this picture, you're wearing a science lab coat. You're teaching science and the kids are laughing and you're smiling. And I go, yeah. And he's like, how come you don't smile in class like that? 
Oh, yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And so let me tell you, and unfortunately, I'm sure this happens to a lot of educators. It was a major gut punch because I'm like, oh, my God, how much damage am I causing by doing what I was taught, which I need to unlearn because that's not my true authentic self. I love the subject matter. I love working with the students. I enjoyed everything that we did in that class because it was a class that was not tested, didn't have standards. And literally, I could do whatever I want. It was a it was in a technology lab. And so what that student did was, one, again, going back to I wasn't aware of of the culture that I was creating. Yeah, I'm greeting at the door. But then the minute you come in the door, the smile just turned off. And automatically, for some reason, when we get to winter break, when we come back after winter break, now I can smile and be happy and happy-go-lucky. I think that even to this day, I I, I stay in touch and I thank, thank him. I'm like, that literally changed the course of the culture of the environments that I created by me being happy and smiling literally from day one and telling all the students, one, here's how I roll. Here's the culture that we have here. Here's how I feel about my biases. Um, and, and of course, I mentioned the whole thing around how the curriculum has, has a race, racism, racism is embedded in the curriculum. And we're going to do everything we can to authenticate you as an individual, validate your identity, and you're going to do things that are going to be against the things that will make you feel less than human or make you not see yourself within the curriculum. And of course, back then, I didn't have the full terminology understanding of things like that was being culturally relevant, culturally responsive. That was also uh, being disrupting many of the readings that they were they were exposed to. And it was also validating all of my students to provide them with the experience that I love to share, which is uh, the mirrors and windows and the sliding glass doors. Which, by the way, for your audience, if you've never heard that before, that is a concept of a learning experience that is developed by Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, who is a professor emerita at The Ohio State University. We have to cite our sources. Can you tell us more about what that means for sure. those people who don't know? Yes. So ultimately, the whole idea around that that Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop developed was that in the context of reading and student experiences, they need to be able to see themselves in the curriculum, the mirrors. And if they see themselves represented in an authentic voice, it helps validate them and their own identity. And I will add that, for example, with, uh, you know, if you teach, especially if you teach black students, their exposure to the curriculum should not be limited to the enslavement of their ancestors, <laughs> Okay, there's a whole lot more to the story than just that. Okay, a whole lot more. Um, but ultimately, you want to be able to see yourself in the curriculum, uh, representing an authentic voice. Uh, and then the windows are you want to be able to have a window into the cultural identity of those that are not aligned with yours from an authentic voice. And then periodically, you want to be able to have access to immersing yourself in that experience, which means a sliding glass door that you then go through. Uh, and then I will add that Dr. Debbie Reese, who is an indigenous professor here uh, in the United States, uh, she added that sometimes those windows have curtains because not every culture is freely available for you to go and look in. You have to make the effort to pull the curtains back to see into that culture. And ultimately, I think for our students, that provides, uh, you know, an opportunity for you to engage in cross-cultural connections, which goes back to what I shared before. Rising tide lifts all boats. If we if we have culturally inclusive learning environments that are anti-bias and anti-racist, i.e. there's nothing that we do that is exclusionary, whether it's on a byproduct of our biases, a byproduct of policy, or a byproduct of maintaining a racial hierarchy, think about how many of our students can actualize their full potential. Perfect. Thank you. My pleasure. I was familiar with the first two terms. The sliding glass doors was new to me. Right on. 
So I have you all speechless. You know what? I, I think it happens from time to time. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Thanks for having me on. I, I think for, for me, I'm, like I said before, I'm kind of just taking this in and I, I'm thinking here, like I'm, I'm going to steal a term from, from Danny Bauer. I think all of us who are listening to this podcast, who are on social media, who are you know, making this push to have education better, we're all ruckus makers, right? And we all want to be powerful. We all want to help our students. We all want to like knock down these barriers and make these changes that we can make to make all of our students feel welcome and, and to make the schools feel like a place that is not what it was. Right. You know, but, and, and, and you mentioned in, in your program, you know, you were told, make sure you don't smile. And that's something we're all told. Right. So right. I think when we're training, when we're training new teachers, we have to keep this in mind. But for the veteran teachers who always teach and they just say, I'm doing my job as a teacher. How do we reach how do we reach these different people? We have we have the teachers who are more I guess awake to this and and want to make these change. You have the people in the middle who are, know it's not right and they know they should make the change. But then you might have the ones who are stuck at the end and they're not going to make a they're not going to make a, a a movement towards this just because they know they're doing a good job. Exactly. So, so where do we start? I mean, I'd love to have you come and speak to all of our schools in New Jersey. I'm sure you'd love that, too. Um, but tell us where we can start. Just we'll, we'll go there first. So I, 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 later. And um, on a side note, if and when <laughs> we're able to no longer socially distance, um, I need to see you all in person where we can hang out together and break bread. Um, OK, so back. To, but to your question. So. What you just broke down are the dynamics of any site, any type of major shift. You always have your early adopters then you have your second degree of followers then you have the large volume that are kind of that what I call the status quo upholders, but they're willing to shift if the winds change. And then you have your ardent resistors. My main thing with all that is the following. If you think you've been doing it right, what you need to recognize is that you are normalized and normalizing a status quo system that by design is exclusionary. If you look at, again, if you look at the curriculum, you look at what you look at the, you know, the literary canon, you know, that's one of my big ones is you look at the literary canon, look at the books, you know, just do an assessment and inventory of who are the authors, what are their representations? Okay. There's your start. Okay. And then, you know, even something as simple as, you know, I always uh, when I, I share with educators, especially leaders, you want to you want to do a quick culturally inclusive uh, audit of your schools. What am I looking at when you look at the posters that are on the walls? What am I looking at when you look at the representations of a visual capacity? What am I looking at when you look at the type of books that are available in the library? Now, that's a start. Now, let's go to the educators. I just shared with you all something that I was taught that I needed to unlearn. You know what else I was taught that I needed to unlearn? That 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 student achievement has to be um, identified as 90 to 100 is an A, 80 to 89 is a B, 70. Okay, so so within that structure, if you break down and assess how do we how do we identify and assess achievement and success, it's to maintain a social hierarchy and a structure. This is why class rank comes in. Okay, now when it comes to those individuals, the first the first step. You know, and I, I use this term because we associate it with uh, folks that are that are overcoming things like uh, substance abuse challenges, things like that. The first step is acknowledgement. 
And so that's why I shared with shared earlier that I acknowledge certain privileges that I'm afforded. They don't it's not a function of me being a bad person. This whole idea around that we're a binary, we're good or bad, we're human beings and there's nuance in what we do and it ebbs and flows and is ever changing. This is why Dr. Kenny said you can be racist in one statement and anti-racist in the next statement all within the same context of a conversation. So for me with with leaders, it really boils down to this. And this is what I identify as courageous leadership. A recognition that the systems that we have by design are to create a social hierarchy, and that social hierarchy is along race, then social economic status, and then gender line. And if you have educators in your buildings or in your district that are ardently against it, the very first question I encourage ed- uh, leaders to ask is the following. <clears throat> this is how you can build an awareness. How many of you chose to go into education because you wanted to cause harm to kids? Nobody's hand is up. That's a good thing. Yes, right. And of course, we all know, for the most part, hopefully, that's not why people chose to go into education. And then I follow up that question with, if you knew that something you were doing had a high probability of causing harm to kids, would you want to know and want to want to want to make that change? Like, would you want the support to make that change? And then now, once you establish that consensus, now we have a stepping stone to grow from. And now, and this is what I do with the work I do with districts. Now, when you find yourself developing, to AJ, your point, when you find yourself trying to deviate to that whole thing around, I don't feel comfortable. I don't want to do this. I'm not that person. Let's go back to that question that you answered. You know, I didn't choose to go into education because I wanted to damage kids and cause harm to kids. And yeah, if there's something I'm doing, I would want to know. Perfect. So when you decide you want to disconnect or you want to be in denial, what you're essentially doing is saying, my personal feelings and my personal needs are more important to me than the social and emotional health of the kids that I am responsible for supporting and teaching. And and honestly, if 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 you're placing that value above the kids, then my my response at this point. You know, you need to turn in your papers. Education is not not the career for you. It's not because you are damaging kids. And I see the results of those. I, I for one, uh, am the result of that. Uh, I, I made it despite not because of. Fortunately for me, I had a strong uh, support system at home, especially my my father. May he rest in peace, um, who demanded excellence, who, uh, you know, I come from a family of educators. So, you know, it, it, it wasn't. I didn't have to have the whole college going uh, culture um, indoctrinated to me by my school because it was already embedded in my family history. I'm not the first in my family to go to college. I'm not the second generation, not the third. I'm at minimum the fourth. But there are a lot of kids that they would be the first. And you know what? They deserve to have access to those opportunities in the first place. And that's why, you know, uh, uh, on a side note. I love working with superintendents where I will ask the question, literally in a room of superintendents, how many of you are the first in your family to go to college? And a bunch of hands go up. And I'm like, well, guess what? You made it despite not because of, and you're in a unique position to dismantle the barriers that you had to overcome for the students that are under your care now. And that's how you begin that cycle. And, and again, many of those structures are a byproduct of a racist policy. Ken, so powerful, and and I don't know if it's irony because I'm not an English teacher, but it seems ironic that what you just described, how it relates to racism, anti-bias education, what we need to look at would also apply to what's currently going on with pandemic and the idea of opening schools, and are we doing that because we care about students and students need to learn, or are there other underlying factors of why we need to put students in schools in the late summer and in the fall? 
Um, so again, well, what you're saying can be applied to two different things. It can, which is why I'm a staunch advocate for digital equity. Another thing for all your listeners and for all of us, uh, if it makes its way out of committee, it makes its way onto the House or Senate floor. If there's a bill, we all need to call our elected officials. The Internet should be a utility. There's no reason for it not to be now. I mean, I've done work with economically challenged urban school districts and economically challenged rural school districts. You know what they have in common? They don't have easy and uninhibited access to broadband internet. And they should. And you've seen that now with the whole remote learning. But here's the thing. It's always existed. That's why you shared in my bio. I won that award. But I've been a staunch advocate. And I'm not the only one. But I've been a staunch advocate for, one, the internet should be a utility. Uh, and then, two, you know, looking at which, you know, I know we're, we're getting close to time here, is looking at how technology is used. So to AJ's point, you want to know how racism actualizes itself when it comes to educational technology? Why is it that I can go to a school that predominantly serves a historically marginalized student population and the overwhelming way is in which technology is used is drill and kill and task oriented things. But I can go to a wealthy white suburban school and they're using and here's the key. They're using technology in innovative and creative ways. Why does that exist? Why is it that, you know, if you look at, you know, from a, a really another level, why is it that I can do certain searches with Google, especially Google images, and the results are the, are the that I look at, I can see are a byproduct of the biases of the code. And what people don't understand is that search is based on an algorithm. The algorithm is based on a code. That code is written by a human being. That human being has highly unlikely not gone through anti-bias and anti-racist professional growth. So you see, that's where it shows up in so many different ways. It shows up in your access. It shows up in when you have access, how it's used. It shows up in not only how it's used, but what you use, you know, which platforms you use. I see all these, you know, these regimented um, platforms that people use or the school districts use for intervention this and remedial that. And remember the terminology, that's deficit terminology. And I, and when you start to interrogate those, you look at the way the computer-based instruction is taught, the types of questions that are on there, you know, and no, it wasn't fair to expect teachers or school districts to be able to do a complete 180 when we had to go to remote learning. As you all shared in my bio, part of my master's program, I had a full year of Synchronous and asynchronous uh, teaching and learning, computer-based instruction, and instructional design, a full year. So to think that teachers and school districts could do a 180 in a day, a week, a month, three months, forget about it. The default should be, how are we meeting the needs of our students first and foremost before we get into actual learning? It, it goes back to the, the the old adage of imperfect systems designed by imperfect beings. Yep. And yeah, that, that's we where we're at. But. That. And that's why it's a it's a it's an evolutionary process, a continuous process. But again, the first step is the acknowledgement. Now, Ken, speaking of the process, uh, something that's coming up here in July, you are one of the minds behind an event coming up called the Liberated Educator. Yes. Which can be found at theliberatededucator.com. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what this event is? When is it? Who is it for? So it is the 
first of all, the event is a byproduct of the collaboration with three of my wonderful colleagues and friends and, 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 I, I could actually three of my friends who are happen to also be colleagues. So uh, Jeffrey Heil, Dee Lanier and Monica Martinez. And ultimately, it was me looking at what workshops are being offered right now, what seminars are being offered right now, what PD support is being offered right now. And how can I augment uh, in collaboration with them, how can how can we actually augment what's being offered, but do it in a way that is slightly different and is aligned with a lot of what we talked about in this podcast. So it's a four-part workshop series, uh, and that's why it's titled Becoming an Anti-Bias and Anti-Racist Educator. So in those four distinctly different but but um, kind of synced up or overlapping um, workshops, it starts off with building an understand, foundational understanding of terminology, sense of self, anti-bias, and now how can we develop personalized mechanisms to be able to continually check our biases? So that's what I'm doing. Jeff is doing one that augments that around going, uh, undergoing the, an, a deeper analysis of, uh, of our own personal identities and looking at things like, what is my identity? How is it aligned within the dynamic of the dominant and the subordinate culture? How do you define the dominant culture? Why is it that if you're part of the subordinate, it's easy to define the dominant, but if you're part of the dominant, it's not easy to define that. And then now placing a hierarchy on what is most important to me around those, uh, around that. And how does that play a role in what I covered with Ken, which leads into the, the webinar uh, workshop with D, which is once I have a better understanding of the terminology, myself, my own biases, my own identity, how does that how does that actualize itself when I operate within the system of education? So D has a whole um, problem based learning design thinking um, protocols that he developed called Solve in Time, uh, which will take uh, attendees through those protocols um, using uh, the equity uh, expansion pack as well as the anti-racist expansion pack. So you see, you start off with the foundational understanding of terminology, foundational understanding of our our biases, foundational understanding of, of, of how they actualize themselves, a deeper understanding of my own identity, how my identity plays a role in those biases, then now how my biases and identity actualize themselves within the systems. And then what Monica will do is now what I what, I, what we describe as anti-bias and anti-racist by design. So it's now, once you have that understanding, how, do, how does bias and racism uh, um, um, actualize itself in things like the searches. Um, if you look at, you know, here's a big one that I know Monica and I have, have, have talked about. If you look at some of the platforms that teachers use and you look at the templates, here's one for you. Go look at the templates and look at the imagery that's in the template. And you see that perpetuates that. Um, it wasn't until only a few years ago that Apple uh, updated their iOS to where I can change the skin tone of the emojis on there. You see all those little things and Monica will talk about, you know, how do we how do we account for those things when it comes to the design and the purpose behind what we do? If you look at media, you look at the messaging within media. So you see it, it starts off, it, it, it builds to that point. And granted, it's only four parts. Uh, frankly, this is work that that the four of us could do with educators, with schools, with school districts for at least the next year or two. But it's a start to do that because what I've seen and not to not to discredit the other workshops and stuff is they all they all do a unique uh, provide a unique benefit. But to me, my whole thing is they're all treated 
many of them are treated like here's a checkbox. So you can do our workshop and check the box and say you've done it. Ours is recognizing that you have to build a solid, unbreakable foundation and that even after you go through all four, the work still has to continue. And it's why I always share it's a marathon, not a sprint. Or to quote Nipsey Hussle, the marathon continues. <laughs> oh, and if I may add, the whole idea around the logo, first of all, logo design is by uh, Monica Martinez as well. The whole idea around the logo, if you've seen it, is that we've been chained and shackled to education. And part of this is is breaking those breaking those chains. I share with you all and your audience an example of how I, uh, you know, willingly broke the chains uh, 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 that, that I was shackled to of the way you start off as a teacher early in my career. You, once you have that awareness and you want to start dismantling, you have to, you know, metaphorically break those chains. And once you're once you're you're broken, you are now freed. You're liberated. Now you can be your be the educator that that you want to be. You can be the educator that our students uh, need and deserve. I mean, the, the logo is really, really beautiful. And like you said, you know, it's, it's all about the systems that, that perpetuate the racism and the biases and, and the liberation from that is, is definitely evident in your logo. And just looking at the event information, um, it's definitely something that educators should check out and, yes, and take part and, in. And, uh, Monica has been participating in the chat. Oh, she had on the broadcast. Yeah. So she's, she's been hanging out with us. Um, I, love I invited her to come on b- behind the scenes, but she said she's not presentable to which I said, <laughs> I'm glad you think we're presentable. So <laughs> it's thank all- you. Uh, and, and again, as a uh, 20 year Photoshop junkie, I, I true, I truly can appreciate the art and the symbolism behind what, what Monica created. Uh, the great. website again is the liberated and you can purchase tickets for this yes. uh, to participate through Eventbrite. Um, and side note, that event got featured on That's Eventbrite's right. main pages. So right. it, it's making waves. So, I mean, it, it's going to be a fantastic event. And I, 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 yeah, and I hope a lot of people attend, you know, Eventbrite, they uh, they were they, they vetted it and they added it to their online racial equity workshop page. They actually even posted it from their social media outlet. So, you know, again, it's, um, it's, it's, it's just, it's different. I, I, I don't want to say we're better than others. I, I think we are better than some, but it's, it, the, the whole thing is that it's different. And my hope is that, um, you know, while we do have tickets for single registrations, I actually hope that, that school leaders and uh, teams at schools will join as a team so that they can undergo the, the growth that we will provide in that as a team. Because ultimately, as I shared earlier, a rising tide lifts all boats. That's great. So yeah. speaking of PD opportunities, Ken, we always end with one final question. And um, the question is, what is your ideal form of PD to either participate in as an attendee or to lead for others? Oh, that's easy. Um, I will I will answer both of those questions with the following. The workshops that I do with school leaders around organizational culture are always Highly interactive, highly engaging. And when I say engaging, it's not Ken just stands up and talks for the whole day. Um, and I actively participate with the leadership teams. It's basically mirrors what the way I taught in class. So, Chris, you may, I used to teach. So in the technology lab, I taught film and video production, graphic design. Uh, and then we did a lot of other things, but those were the, those were the foundational things that we did because I can incorporate. Uh, across all content areas within those. Uh, and I used to always tell my students, any project that we do in class, you should know that 
I'm doing it with you. And there were lots. In, in fact, the student that I shared that story about with the textbook, that student. Uh, here's a funny thing. I'll add this because I know we're at the end of time. That student helped Ken, me. Hold on. Oh, Ken, it's a podcast. We got all the time in the world. OK, <laughs> I can be long winded, um, but, but I have to share this because here's another connection with that student that to the, to the question that Stacey asked. That student helped me film my application video that I submitted that uh, that essentially got me to become an Apple distinguished educator. Because I was like, I was like, you got to help me film this because I know you love being behind a camera. You got. And, and, and so here's here's the interesting connection with that. He has his own film and uh, production company here in Los Angeles. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Isn't it? <laughs> so, so to answer Stacey's question, the best PD to be a part of, the best PD to participate in is what I do is actively involved, engaged and, you know, a, a an active brain retains and, and, and is immersed more in a learning experience. And if I stand and lecture, eventually that brain becomes inactive. I mean, I've seen the, I've seen the data that um, MIT did a whole thing where it showed brainwave activity. And it was funny where um, the, uh, I have this in one of my keynotes where um, it, it spikes way, way up when you're actively immersed, engaged in a learning experience and it drops way down when you are not. And guess what? Where it drops way down, the, the lines were the exact same as sleeping. <laughs> oh, yeah. We've all been in that PD session. Uh, exactly. Exactly. So that's my favorite PD to take part in. And that's that's ultimately why, you know, even if you tie it in with um, with the, uh, the event later this month, it, that's why if you'll notice in the description, it says it's highly interactive and engaging because ultimately that's the best way to learn. That's how we all learn. Well, Ken, if you can find time outside of what you're doing with this type of professional development, if you could develop some PD workshops for presenters to create engaging and stimulating presentations, yeah, I know I'd, I'd appreciate that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I hear you. I mean, I do my best to model it, and hopefully that resonates with enough, but I hear you. I, I think people listening to this episode will have all spikes on their, their <laughs> brainwaves because Good. Uh, you, you dropped knowledge bombs for the last hour and and we can't be any more appreciative than than i know we are Very um, cool. for people who want to continue the conversation with you and connect with you and learn with you and from you how can they do that what are the best ways i have my website kennethshelton.net i use social media quite heavily i'm on twitter at k underscore shelton and instagram at k shelton um i toggle between the both i don't choose one over the other i love each platform for what it does, but ultimately you can get to me on both of those from my website, kennethshelton.net. Uh, and we have the, uh, the liberated educator website that, you know, we're with my, uh, my friends, we're looking at, uh, augmenting not just what we're offering, but supporting other educators who would like to do webinars or workshops that are aligned with be becoming a liberated educator as well. So, um, but as far as me personally, it's kennethshelton.net. Uh, and I would actually, um, just on a side note, just um, uh, not a shameless plug, but an encouraging plug uh, for anyone who loves the designs that Monica has done, especially that one. Uh, I would encourage them to reach out to Monica uh, to do their designs. And um, another thing that I'm a staunch advocate for is reaching out to uh, those of us that are representational of a historically marginalized identity is not just reaching out and asking for time for free, but, but saying, you know what, if I have a budget to do something, then I'm going to work with this educator to do it. Um, Cause that's another thing that I, I've encouraged a lot of educators to do is, you know, stop asking for time and expertise for free, you know, support educators, you know, if you can, stuff like that. 
So, value for value. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and Monica, if you're still watching, please uh, drop a way that we can connect with you or c- can uh, please let us know what links we can add to the show notes so people can connect with uh, okay. with Monica as well. Yeah, I'll, include, uh, I'll send you a link to Solve in Time as well, which is, like I said, that's D, D. Lanier's um, brainchild. Excellent. Now, Ken, do you listen to podcasts? All the time. Awesome. So would you like to stick around and maybe recommend something you've learned from recently? Yeah, I can. Sure. All yep. right. So before we get into uh, our recommendations for this episode, uh, make sure you go to podcastpd.com slash 79 to get the links to everything that we're going to put in there, all the ways to connect with Ken and all the resources. And uh, before we get to our recommendations, uh, did you know that, again, if you're getting value from this podcast, you can become a Podcast PD executive producer. You can support this podcast on a monthly or a yearly basis, and you can support Podcast PD by donating either $5 a month, or you can do that for $50 a year. As a thank you for your support, every executive producer will receive a Podcast PD executive producer sticker, and yearly supporters will get a mug and a Podcast PD t-shirt. If that's something that you'd like to do, go over to podcastpd.com slash executive producer for more information. And thank you to Adam Kelly, who is an executive producer. All right. So podcast listening, podcast sharing time. AJ, what do you got for us? All right. So real quick, I'm going to throw out a new podcast that uh, I I was uh, shared with, I guess, and I don't know how to say it. I was reached out by Adam DeWitt who listened to my podcast uh, reflected and said, Hey, thank you because of you, you know, I'm starting my own podcast, something in the works and now I'm going to just going to do it. So he's doing it with uh, Jeff Prickett and it's called the principal leadership lab principal leadership lab. And it's a brand new podcast or two episodes in. they have a, a big release tomorrow. So, um, I think really this is a good podcast, especially if you're looking at that leadership lens, uh, they're, they're really going into a lot of ideas with leadership, with being a principal, uh, and I think honestly, you'll get a nice, a nice chunk of information from them. Uh, they're two funny guys and they're really passionate about what they're talking about when it comes to leadership. So check out the principal leadership lab with Adam and Jeff. Nice. My recommendation is coming a bit out of left field as it just came to me today, talking to the lovely Mrs. Nessie, who for all intents and purposes, she's the one driving the carriage. So Uh, this podcast is called French kiss life. Now the name of this podcast doesn't pass one of my tests of, if I ask you what the name, if I tell you the name, can you tell me what it's about? This podcast is not about what you think it'd be about the French kiss life. reminds me when I was 15. Anyway, so (laughs) the, uh, here's the description. The French kiss life is a podcast, a lifestyle brand and a global community with a mission to inspire you to live artfully And well, each week, master life coach Tonya Lee offers practical advice, inspiring stories and transformational experiences to elevate everyday lives of women. What did you say, Stacey? Check you out. We always hear about Uh, art of manliness and now it's finally like something different for women. Here's the, yeah, I guess it's the, uh, the equivalent. (laughs) Uh, At French Kiss Life, we know the best way to improve our life is to celebrate and enjoy the life we have right now. Are you ready to create a life that will inspire your 90 year old self to raise her flute and toast quote? Well done, darling. So you can find that uh, you can tune in weekly to join the conversation and to discover this podcast and subscribe and check it out. 
go to frenchkisslife.com. I listened to two episodes today, and I think I will click that subscribe button because I enjoyed it. That's awesome. Look at you. I like it. I like it a lot. All right. So I am listening to, um, well, I listened to episode two of Reflect Ed. So AJ, I'm glad you gave yourself a plug. Um, I liked your homework, which was to get uncomfortable, make yourself uncomfortable and participate in the hard things. Um, and I'm probably not doing that homework justice, but it really prepared me for the discussion that we had tonight and the work that all of us as educators have to do going forward as we enter our new school years and we examine our biases and our racist selves and, and what we bring intrinsically, um, unconsciously uh, to the table when we're looking at and working with all of our students. Um, so, you know, I, I've started to have some of these conversations with people that I trust and I think for me, the real discomfort is going to be in having these conversations with my students who I may or may not know well, depending on how school starts, um, will really gauge the type of community I can build, especially a community with everybody, as opposed to one-on-one. I can, I can certainly build those relationships, but what that will look like. And then the other thing um, that I've been listening to, because you guys know I listen to a lot of books, um, My sister and I both just finished listening to So You Want to Talk About Race by um, Idioma Oluo. Oluo. I'm so bad with that last name. Um, And that book was fantastic. Um, It is a nonfiction book that was written in 2018. And in it, the author examines um, our base, our, 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 our biases and, and racism. Each chapter starts with a tight with each chapter title is a question about race in contemporary America. Um, and Aluo outlines her opinions on the topics as well as advice um, about how to talk about these issues um, with your, with your peers, with your family members and your friends and, and the people that are in your lives. So um my sister read it after I did, and we haven't had time to have that face-to-face. We had some different reactions to it, but I'm really excited to have that conversation with her. Um, and then my my colleagues at school who uh, were starting to have those conversations about how we're going to address this with kids, we're trying to... We have a book club um, that has spanned all kinds of topics, and I think this needs to be one of the books that we read as a book club to kind of um, immerse ourselves in becoming better. And doing better for our kids. So if you haven't read that book, I highly recommend that you check it out. For me, it has always been available. Um, I think when when we started looking at black books and um, and how they um, are really going to affect the way we think about Black Lives Matter and, and those issues, um, that book just became available all the time. So no matter what I, I looked at, I look for it today. I can check it out right now. It's available. So I was super excited about that. And it's narrated by Bonnie Turpin, who is one of my all time favorite narrators um, because she has such an authentic voice yep. and has such a beautiful, calming voice. And I've listened to her read four books now. And I, I think I might just look for her books that she's narrated, but um, check out that book. Um, so you want to talk about race and then check out Bonnie Turpin as a really phenomenal narrator. She, she narrated the hate you give and I cry. Right during that book. And then she also, um, she narrated bad feminist and, um, uh, oh, good gravy, uh, children of blood and stone. So I'm hoping she does a sequel, which I haven't gotten my hands on yet. So anyway, that's my recommendation. Those are my recommendations. Ken, how about Excellent you? Recommendations. Well, I'm, wait, 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 oh, oh, Ken, wait, Stacy, what's your number? 
Oh, um, so <laughs> this morning, my podcast number was at a shameful 2004. Um, but I deleted a lot of them that I figured I was never going to listen to that I didn't care about and didn't need to take up space on my phone or in my brain just thinking about the number. So I'm down to 1990. And that's with adding a couple things today. So, okay. We'll work on that. We're working on it. <laughs> can can it, 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 this is your, since you're new to the game? Stacy subscribes to everything podcast and downloads <sighs> the back catalog. And hold on, I mean that's where she's at. <laughs> I I subscribe to. How do can you how can you tell how many you subscribe to? Oh, um, that's how many well, I have downloaded on my phone. Those are the unlistened to episodes oh, of all the podcast episodes oh, she's yeah, available to her. I think you and I might be in the same boat. I can't even count how many I have downloaded. Wow. Oh, no. See oh, yeah. I, um, I, so to answer your question, a couple of things. I listen to podcasts all the time, like li- literally all the time. And um, I, uh, I have a personal goal that I had set on um, – I want to say probably about four years ago to um, read a book a week. So I read a lot of books too. So the interesting thing that I, you know, it's interesting, Stacy, real quick, um, um, is Yomo Luo's book. That's one of the books that I recommend people read way before they read White Fragility. Hmm. Because if you look at the references in White Fragility, guess what one of the references in that is? So you want to talk about it. And my whole thing is, if you want to start, if you want to engage in that professional growth and that reading, then you should start off with an authentic voice who's got that experience, who presented in, who presents it in a very clear, compelling and understandable way. And it really is. It's so it's it's like you're having a conversation with someone who's right. just talking to you about yeah. like I agree. Yeah. so well done. It's very conversational and very um, upfront without being in your face. Yep. So I, like I said, I listen to a lot of podcasts for the, for brevity. Um, I would say there's a couple. So one, one of my favorite podcasts is number one on my list is code switch by NPR. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing. I, uh, every episode is amazing. I, I just, I love how they take matters of race, culture, and politics and, and, and break them down into really digestible and simplistic chunks. Um, you know, and there's a lot of topics they cover that I, they just resonate with me big time. In fact, one of my favorite ones, because it's something that I've been wrestling with in the context of the work that I do is I was back in March and it was a whole episode on the limits of empathy, because I've always said, which one's more important, empathy and compassion? And is it truly possible to be empathetic? The whole idea around, well, just walk a mile in my shoes. How empathetic are you going to be if you know that you could take those shoes off at the end of that mile? You know, so that's that. That's one. Uh, a good friend of mine, Tyo Roxon. I love his uh, podcast, as told by Nomads. So it's it's uh it's a it's all around uh, uh, culture bias, all those sorts of things, but through the lens of immigrants as well, because he's an immigrant from um, uh, Nigeria. And then uh, a recent book that I just started diving into that I actually learned about from Code Switch is called How to Be Fine, What We Learned from Living by the Rules of 50 Self-Help Books. And it's written by uh, Jolenta Greenberg and uh, Kristen Meisner, Meinzer. Um, they have a podcast called By the Book. Yes, I would listen to that. I was like, I know those names. <laughs> yes. And they did an analysis of self-help books through the lens of race. And it, and, and honestly, I, again, they touched on something that was so problematic for me from the book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. It's, it's a book that like, if anyone's read it, 
I'm going to share with you what they, they put to words, what I was thinking, but I was just like, is it just me? The book is very white and white male centered. And the only time you know about a person in that book that isn't white and male is the hot Asian gal. And that's what they described her as. She doesn't have a name. And describe it as that. So think about in the context of the conversation we just had, what are you perpetuating by dehumanizing the one character that you identify who they are? They don't have a name. And that's the only one you use as the identifier. See that? That's why the liberal educator, I'm telling you, the more that we examine and interrogate, the more we become liberated, the more we can see what things are problematic and be able to speak against them, which makes all of us better in the process. Okay. What was the name of that last one? Which one? Um, with Kristen and Jolenta. Oh, it's their book. Uh, it's called oh, it's- how, to be, how to be fine. Okay. How to be fine. Yeah. The podcast was by the book. Yes. The and that, the book. I'm a little behind on that one because I have not read, but I, I remember when they evaluated <laughs> how not to give an F and I was just like, you go sing it sisters because their perspective on all of these books like that they read are amazing. amazing. But, um, and and Funny. They're they so funny. And you know what? They did an episode, which I, I could send it to you for the show notes. They did an episode on, I remember if it was Daring Greatly, but the whole episode was attributed to Dr. Brene Brown, who I'm a huge fan of. Uh, she actually has a podcast too. In fact, yes. another one for your listeners, and I don't remember the title of the episode, but the one in which she interviewed Dr. Kendi, she posted on social media, this is probably the most important conversation I've had in my life. That's Dr. Brown saying that. So with that being said, they did that. And it's something that I do now based on that podcast is, um, uh, and I can send you a link or do a quick Google search was the whole idea around self-compassion, which to the question that AJ asked, I don't know if I had mentioned it. I I think I did is part of our personal growth is having self-compassion. It's saying, I recognize that there are things that I need to understand about myself, be forgiving about myself and recognize in myself, which is a byproduct excuse me, which is a catalyst for my own personalized growth. So they talked about the self-compassion tests. And again, I can send you the link because that's something I do every week, because that is something that I think for us as human beings, and especially for educators, it's important to have self-compassion because if you have self-compassion, you don't know, you no longer will have some of the avoidable barriers to your own personal growth. And that goes with a bias, whether it's being anti-racist or anything. And they did an episode on that. And, and, and they were, they were, they were, they admittedly talked about how they filled out the, the, they did the quiz and they didn't like the results, but because of the results, it said, okay, here are some things that I need to do to be more compassionate about myself, be more forgiving of myself, which ultimately opened up the gates for me to uh, actualize more personalized growth. See, that could be a whole nother episode with you all. I've already written down a whole list of other episodes that we can have with you. This is how I roll. So, like Ken, it. since you don't have your own podcast, you want to be the fourth host on this one? <laughs> if you all will have me back as a host, I count me in. I'm working, actually, D. Lanier and I are working on launching a podcast. So, that's what I was waiting for. You'll, you'll talk about it when we officially get it, get it, get it set up and running. But I will tell you that the name of the event gives you a hint as to the name of the podcast. Well played. I can have a other podcast. <laughs> nice. That's music to my ears. Awesome. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for your well, time today. We yeah, super appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's, gone it's gone by. It's been great hanging out with you all. We have to break bread together in person when we can. Definitely. Absolutely. I'm in. <laughs> Absolutely. I like to eat. There we go. <laughs> um, 
I like having so, good conversations with good company as well. Same. Nice. All right. So before we head out and Stacy does the magic, uh, real quick, this past week was the first week of our summer podcast PD Voxer group for 2020. And uh, so we're one week in. It's never too late to get aboard if you want to join the Voxer group and basically do the podcast version of a book club. Go to podcastpd.com slash summerpd, and that's all lowercase letters. You get right into our Voxer group, and as we're recording this on July 12th, we're going to come out with another episode recommendation and have some great conversation starting tomorrow on July 13th, and uh, join us over on Voxer for continued conversation and camaraderie around podcasts and podcast listening. Stacy, wave the magic wand. All right. Well, we thank you for joining us, Ken, truly. Um and I do look forward to speaking with you again about all of the great things that you're doing and just your perspective and education and how we can become better, better educators. But it is time to say goodbye. So say goodbye, AJ. Goodbye, AJ. Goodbye, Christopher. Goodbye, Christopher. Goodbye, Ken. Goodbye, Stacy. <laughs> goodbye, Podcast PD. Thank you for checking out this episode of Podcast PD. For links to everything that we discussed in this episode, you can visit the show notes at our website, podcastpd.com. To connect with the show on social media, we are at Podcast PD on Instagram and Twitter, and we share using the hashtag Podcast PD. To connect with Stacey, AJ, and myself, we are on Twitter at Mr. Nessie, at Stacey Lindis, and at AJ Bianco. We would love to hear from you, so please go to podcastpd.com slash feedback and send us an email, send us a voice message, whatever you need to do. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you share it with somebody that you think would get value from it. Word of mouth is the best way to share a podcast you enjoy, and we hope you enjoyed Podcast PD. We appreciate you listening, we appreciate your sharing, and we love creating this podcast for you. We'll see you in the next episode. Take care. <laughs>